If you have your Bibles with you, I would like to ask you to open them to the book of James. Uh, there are Bibles in uh, chairs in front of you, and this is on page 1196, and there is a Bible app event for this. It's going to be on page 1196, James chapter 1, and uh, you're welcome to open there. I will give you the heads up. I have it on the screen this week because it's a short passage, um, but it never hurts to see it on your own uh, paper, on your own Bible. It never hurts to uh, be able to take notes on your phone there if you'd like to do that, so feel free to do that. Today, I want to talk to you a little bit about suffering. I want you to think about a couple things with me here. If your child is sick and has pain or discomfort, has those sniffles, has those problems, um, what do you do? You work to take away the suffering. You give Tylenol, maybe. You give hugs. You give chicken soup. In fact, the one thing that you don't do is say, oh, man, I'm so sick of that kid and, and her whining and her sickness and her pain and her suffering. I'm going to lock her in that bedroom and I'll see her in a month. You, know, you just don't do that, right? Because you care about her and you're compassionate toward her or him and you try to alleviate that suffering and rightly so, you should. How about this? Your kid's a little bit older and and your child is in school and they come home and they say they're being bullied. How how do you handle that? You you think, oh man, my my son, my daughter's being bullied. How am I going to handle this? What do I I do with this? And, And that's a very difficult situation because sometimes the thing you do can make it worse and sometimes the thing you do can make it better. So you email the teacher, you go in, you have a parent-teacher conference, you go talk to an administrator, faculty, whatever you need to do, and you say, this suffering has to stop. My child cannot, should not endure this suffering. So you go to bat for your kid to alleviate suffering, and rightly so, you should. And then when your child gets a little bit older, you know, and they're suffering other things, you tend to carry those practices from their childhood into their teen years, and we've all met parents who carry that right into adulthood, Right? Like my, well, my 27-year-old son, you know, he can't afford uh, the car like his buddy has, so I'm going to buy him one. And we know, wait, that's not a good thing. That's a bad thing. That suffering of not having a car like your buddy had isn't going to hurt him a bit. In fact, it might be good for him. But we've all seen parents that really don't know when to stop on the parenting kind of thing. We've seen people who try to alleviate suffering that really, maybe that suffering isn't such a bad thing after all. Maybe that's something that that, that child should go through. Suffering is thought by many people to have great value. For example, someone who lifts weights. You know, they'll do a bunch of bench presses, and then later that evening they'll be going, oh, I got that good burn, you know, wow, I can feel that, you know. And you look and you say, what is wrong with you? That hurts, that's suffering. They say, no, that's good, because what's the phrase? No pain, no gain. That's a good kind of suffering. Or maybe the the student who works really hard and suffers the reality of not being able to have fun with his friends. I've told you this before because I find it so remarkable. My son did not get this from me at all. He got it from his mother. But on Saturday nights when I would call him to say goodnight at 11 o'clock at night, he would, I would say, what are you doing, Tim? And you know what he said. What do you think I'm doing, Dad? Calculus, I'm in the library. 10 o'clock, 11 o'clock on a Saturday night, what are you doing? That's not what I was doing when I was studying for engineering, Tim. Yeah, and that's why you're a pastor, Dad, right? Yeah, yeah. But I'll tell you what, Tim would say to you, that suffering paid off. It paid royal dividends. And it was not a bad thing. And if I'd gone in there to try to rescue from that, that would have been a problem. Because suffering can be a good thing. Ask any surgeon. Yeah, we're going to have to take that thing out of your abdomen. How are you going to do that? We're going to cut a big hole right into you, buddy. We're going to reach right in there and cut that thing loose and pull it out. That's how we're going to do it. You're not doing that to me. That's too much suffering. Then you will die. Okay, cut. Go ahead and cut, because sometimes suffering can be not only 
valuable, but even necessary. Now, we all know these things. We're aware of suffering and the value that it has in life in general. And yet, I would say that most of us have this idea, and I would say it's a lie. It's a lie that even seasoned Christians can believe, that suffering is something to be avoided at all costs. Ah, if there's any way I can keep from having any pain, I want that way. And when we have that mentality, we deprive ourselves of something important. I don't know Sue Bolin. I don't know her at all, but I read some stuff that she wrote, and it's published online. She's a Christian. She writes on Christian websites. She has this one article uh, that she has written, and the title of the article is The Value of Suffering, A Christian Perspective. The Value of Suffering, A Christian Perspective. And I think to myself, okay, now wait, Sue Bolin, what gives you any authority to write on the value of suffering? Like, what, do you got a degree? Is that what taught you about it? No, Sue Bolin had polio. You know what polio is? Google it. It's ugly. It's painful. It's debilitating. It's troubling. It's suffering. And so Bolin, as she's writing about this, in my mind, she speaks with a little bit of authority on the issue of suffering. And she makes a pretty bold statement. She says, there is no such thing as pointless pain in the life of the child of God. Now I want you to think about that. I want you to look at it on the screen. I want you to read it out loud in the silence of your thoughts. (laughs) Look at it. Think about it. There's no such thing as pointless pain in the life of the child of God. She goes on to say that there is value in suffering and that suffering is, in fact, an unhappy, non-negotiable of life in a fallen world. In other words, there's value in suffering and there's no way you're going to avoid suffering. It's going to touch your life. I think she's right on. The Bible speaks a lot about suffering. The book of James is probably a hallmark passage when it speaks about how the Christian should respond to suffering. When James writes in chapter 1, verse 2, Consider it all joy, my brothers and sisters, when you face trials of many kinds because you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance. Let perseverance finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. They got first phrase. Consider it pure joy when you encounter, when you face trials. You can't do that if you believe the lie today that suffering is supposed to be something you avoid at all costs. I want to help you get over that lie. I want to help you consider the trials you face as things that have element of joy, pure joy. But before I do that, I kind of need to speak about a heresy that floats around in some Christian circles. It's a heresy that says this, suffering is alien to the Christian experience. In other words, Christians should never suffer. It's just not part of your makeup. It's not part of what God called you to. Would you allow your own child ever to suffer? No, then your father in heaven would never let you suffer. That's a heresy. It's a false teaching. And many groups uh, teach that. It's not biblical. It's not accurate. It's not even fathomable. (laughs) But their thinking goes kind of like this. It says, since Jesus suffered for us, then we'll never have to suffer. After all, Jesus paid it all. If he paid it all, then what is is this suffering in my life about? It must not be of God. It must be something that I should try to avoid at all costs. If Jesus paid it all, 
then why should I suffer? And the Bible answers that question. Jesus answers that question. He's talking to his followers in chapter 16 of John, and he says to them, I have told you these things so that in me you might have peace. And then he says, in this world, you will have trouble. You will suffer. But take heart, be of good cheer. I've overcome the world. Now, I want you to think of that in kind of a new light. Jesus is saying, you'll have suffering. You will have suffering of such a degree that I'm going to take time in advance to warn you about it. It's not going to be a small thing. If it was a small thing, we wouldn't be having this discussion. But I'm going to take out of the 20, what is it, 22 chapters of John, and I'm going to specifically talk about this here because I want you to know it's going to happen. It's going to happen. The early Christians knew this. The Apostle Paul spoke of suffering, and he said, Now I rejoice in what I am suffering for you. I fill up in my flesh what is lacking in regard to Christ's afflictions for the sake of the body, which is church. That phrase kind of bothers me. Does it bother you? I fill up in my flesh what is lacking in Christ's afflictions. Let me just be real clear. He's not saying that Jesus' death and his suffering is deficient in any way. It's not his point. He's not saying that Jesus suffered almost enough, but you've got to finish it off. He didn't quite top it off. You're going to have to finish it off. He isn't saying that. Here's what he's saying. That we have a role to play in the grand scheme of things for the sake of the body of Christ. That's what that text says. And part of that role involves suffering. It's a necessary kind of thing. In fact, if you read the Bible text honestly, you see that the Bible teaches that suffering is something that is inevitable. It's something that absolutely will happen. And I think that if I could get that through my head, if you could get that through your head, then we together could agree with Sue Bullen. We could actually say there is value in suffering. And having a mindset like that is important if you're destined to face hardship and you are destined to experience hardship in life. The Apostle Paul is writing to a group of Christians that he led to faith in Christ. He's talking to them about this issue of suffering. He says to them in 1 Thessalonians 2, we sent Timothy, that's another pastor that he sent to them, who's our brother and co-worker in God's service and spreading the gospel of Christ to strengthen and encourage you in the faith so that you would not be unsettled by these trials for you know quite well that we're destined for them. Destined for what? For suffering. Now you might say, Pastor Steve, why are you pounding this into the ground like you are? Why are you, I know I'm suffering, right? And I'm not sure. And sometimes in the back of our mind, this kind of script runs, this kind of MP3 is rolling over our, our, our player in the back of our mind, and it says, suffering. It's not for me. In fact, suffering is something that I should try to avoid at all costs because it has no value at all. And if you have that playing in your mind, then when suffering comes into your life, it can take you off guard. And it can hit you when you're not ready for it to hit you. Last evening, I was uh, with Dave Clark, and we were at a rifle range shooting. And there was a guy there. He had a gun. He must have gotten that thing off of a World War II boat. It was huge. It was just this giant gun, right? It wasn't old, though. It was very high-tech. I'm standing there, I have my ear protection on, I'm not paying attention, and clear down at the other end of that range. He pulled the trigger. It scared the living daylights out of me. If you could have seen me jump, you would have said, you're scared like a little child. And I was, because I wasn't ready for it. When something hits you that you're not ready for, it can, it can really knock you for a loop. And when you're surprised by it, oh, that's a problem. 
And that's why Peter says to Christians, he says, Dear friends, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal that has come onto you to test you as though something strange were happening to you, but rejoice as you participate in the sufferings of Christ so you may be overjoyed when his glory is revealed. Now, I have talked about this for three decades. I mean, if you've been around a while, you say, yeah, you've said this before, Pastor Steve. Why do I repeat it over and over again? (laughs) You know why, right? Because over and over again, when fiery ordeals come into our lives, we act like we're surprised. Why is this happening? How does this possibly come to me? Why should I have to, what, what's going on here? It even happens to some of the best of Christians. There was a couple in our church, and I'm so sorry that many of you never had the privilege to meet them. Some of the most godly people I've ever known, Morris and Esther Barrett. I did their funerals. I can remember when Esther first began to fail, she was aged. And when she first began to fail, I can remember talking to her and she said this phrase, it just struck me. Here's the phrase. I never thought it would come to this. Huh. How do you walk with Jesus for scores of years? And then when a severe suffering comes into your life, you're taken by surprise by it. She's just like us, all of us. I will say, though, that as she began to face the reality of that suffering, she walked that road like a champion, like a champion. And when she passed away, I'm there at the the gathering afterward that was in her daughter's home, and, and there's Morris, the brand new widower, you know. And I walk over to him and I say, how you doing, buddy? And he said, really upsets me. I said, what upsets you, Morris? These people crying. She's with Jesus. Who would ever wish her back here? And so you can see the two of them struggling, being caught by surprise when this suffering comes. But when they faced it and when they began to understand this fiery ordeal is something that through Christ they can walk through, they walked like champions because of Christ. It is very interesting to me that when you accept suffering, it kind of loses its grip on you. It no longer holds you captive. And you can begin to say what Sue Bullen said, there's value in my suffering. And you can begin to follow James' instruction and say, this is joy. This is joy to suffer for Christ. Suffering has value. So let's talk about how to get the most out of suffering. Because after all, If you're going to suffer anyway, you might as well get the bang for your buck. Let's talk a little bit about that, okay? And I want to encourage you to maybe use suffering as a tool to help you learn because suffering can actually teach you many things. It can teach you endurance. It can teach you patience. It can teach you wisdom. It can teach you humility. It can teach you compassion. But you're going to have to look for those things. If in the midst of your suffering, you are not looking for those things, chances are you won't see them. So you'll have to keep your eyes wide open. Often, when suffering enters my life, when I'm stressed out, when I'm like, I don't know if I'm going to make it through this, I want to close my eyes. I want to block it out any way I can. I'm a little bit like my friend Wendy, who's probably 10 years older than I am. I haven't seen Wendy in years, but when I was a teenager... (laughs) She uh, 
She was taking me somewhere in my dad's pickup truck. I was 13. She was 25, maybe. I don't know. That's bad math. She was 22, maybe. You know. and, uh, <laughs> and I don't think I ever told you this story before. It always struck with me. I wasn't old enough to drive. Wendy's driving my dad's truck. Let me tell you about my dad's truck. It was a three-quarter ton Dodge extended cab with an eight-foot bed. That thing was like driving a small ship through the streets of Brookville. And she was driving through the streets of Brookville. And in Kermansville, the streets are pretty wide because we parallel park. But in Brookville, they park diagonally. So bumpers are sticking out on cars and trucks all over the place. It's kind of dangerous moving along through there. And it was night and it was rainy. It was difficult to see. And there were people that weren't in their lane. And, and she's driving along and she got to a real narrow place at an intersection. And she, and she said, oh, I don't know if I can do this. I don't know if... And she was suffering right? And listen to what she said. She said, I don't know if I can do this. I'm just going to close my eyes. And she closed her eyes and put the accelerator down. That is what she did. No lie. No lie. (laughs) Wow. And she made it. No scratches, no dents, no nothing. But who does that? Who closes their eyes when they're approaching a very difficult intersection, a very hard place? Who does that? Lots of people. Lots of people. Sometimes when you and I are confronted by suffering, we kind of close our eyes until it's over. We disassociate ourselves from the doctor's diagnosis. We fill our lives with very trivial things and become consumed with Xbox because we don't want to think about the difficulty of the relationship over there. Or we even turn to substances like alcohol and other drugs to kind of numb us to the suffering that we're facing or avoiding, I should say. And in that avoidance, we close our eyes to it. And there are a lot of problems with that. One of the problems with that is we learn nothing if our eyes are closed. We learn nothing. And if you're going to use your suffering to learn, to to teach you things, you're going to have to open your eyes. Jesus came to suffer and died for our sins, and he did it with his eyes wide open. And in that suffering, he learned. In fact, the Bible says something very odd about Jesus. In Hebrews 5, it says, son though he was, he learned obedience from what he suffered. Jesus learned obedience through what he suffered. What does that even mean? I'm not sure what that means. Well, let me tell you this. It wasn't that there was some new piece of information that the omnipotent son of God didn't know. He knew. He's not omnipotent, omniscient son of God. Wasn't that, right? It wasn't that he had to be taught a lesson. I'm going to teach you a lesson, Jesus, then you'll know what suffering's real. Life. Wasn't that, wasn't that. Rather, here's what it was. That through his suffering, he learned what an ordeal felt like. He learned what pain did to you. He learned what it was to struggle firsthand. He felt it personally. And in that process, he became able to do something that he otherwise would not have been able to do. He became able to empathize with us. And that's why the scripture says we don't have a high priest who's unable to empathize with us in our weakness. We have one that was tempted in every way. He's been there. He experienced it. He learned from it. The value of suffering can only be realized when you're willing to keep your eyes open and feel what it feels like, to face your heartache straight on so you know what God has in mind, to look for ways to respond to the pain that God is giving you and is providing for you, and to keep your eyes open so that you might learn what Christ has to teach you in suffering. And if you believe that suffering has no place in your life, 
and that you're too good to suffer or you shouldn't be suffering. It's not fair you're suffering. If you believe that suffering should be avoided at all costs, you will never be able to use it to learn. That won't happen to you. You can get the most out of suffering when you use it to learn. And you can get good things out of suffering when you use it to transform your character. Most of us, <laughs> most of us have little ugly blemishes on our character, right? Little things that are wrong with our heart, little things that are wrong with us. Tell me what yours is, <laughs> right? I'm not going to tell you that. How about this? How about arrogance? I have that one. I can't believe how some people drive. Can you? Right? Or you look around and you say, some people's kids, they're just awful. I would never parent that way. I would never feed my children that. I would not do that. That was so stupid. I would never get in trouble like that and end up in jail because I have this arrogance thing. I feel that way about myself. And that's an ugliness on us. My friend Jack had that arrogant spot on his life. He was a young Christian, and when my children were small, Jack was the guy who knew all the things that Laurel and I were doing wrong as parents, you know? And he knew what we should be doing right. Do you have people like that in your life? You know, people who are constantly correcting your parenting style, people who are constantly telling you some new technique they read about, people who are faithfully suggesting that maybe you have, there's a better idea from everything from potty training to how really they should be dressed when they go to school. You, you got people like that in your life? Jack was a little bit like that. There's something else that was kind of interesting about Jack. He was a single guy. <laughs> huh, how about that, right? No children. Now, I don't want to say that what God brought into Jack's life was suffering. But he brought a single mom, and they fell in love. And he was an instant parent of two, just like that. I just rejoiced quietly. <laughs> but God wasn't quite done. And again, I'm not saying that single mom was, a, was a suffering. You could say that if you want, but I'm not saying that she was a godly woman, and that's a good marriage to this day, Right? But God has this great sense of humor, and after he gave Jack a single mom with two kids, he gave them twins. Yeah, right? And God just kept on going. That family, it was like a McCracken family or something. It just kept going and going and going, still going. Yeah, right? Now again, I don't want to say that that was a form of suffering for Jack, but I do want to say that the challenges that it presented transformed his character. Do you understand that? And it did that by bringing humility to him. It changed how he reacted when he saw someone else's kids not towing the line he thought they should tow. And Jack used that. Again, suffering's not the exact word. But he used that to transform his life. Now, it doesn't just happen with things like humility. Suffering can change your life by making you more compassionate. When you're very condemning of the way other people are doing things, and then something bad happens in your life, it's not just humbling, it makes you a little more compassionate. I, I think of this often in sports. I've never played hockey. I can't even stay upright on skates, but I love watching hockey. You know one of my favorite parts of the game? When the other team gets hurt. <laughs> That's awful, isn't it? Yeah, haul that goalie into the locker room. That's good. <laughs> you know why I feel that way? Because I've never experienced how solid that ice is when someone throws you down onto it, right? You want the professional wrestling thing to really be meaningful? Get them off of that mattress and put them on some ice. <laughs> and I can guarantee you that men and women who have hit that ice and been significantly injured 
when they see even a player from the other team hit it, there's a little twinge of compassion in them that doesn't exist in me because I haven't suffered that particular kind of suffering. Suffering changes you. It changes your character if your eyes are open and it makes you into a different person. And that's a beautiful thing. I was talking to Eric Oles about this. You know that Eric's wife and his son were tragically killed. He lost them. I'm not going to tell you the extent of that conversation. It was very brief, but he said, it has changed me. It has changed me. And he didn't say that regretfully. He said that like, amazing how it has changed me. A third way that you can use suffering is to use it to deepen your walk with Christ. Here's something I do not understand. This absolutely blows my mind. And when I say it, some of you might feel guilty. (laughs) Uh, Sometimes when people encounter suffering, they turn and walk away from Jesus. Maybe forever. Maybe for just a couple minutes. But here they are, they're encountering suffering, and they stop going to church. They stop reading their Bible. They stop praying. How are you doing? How are you doing in your walk with God? Oh, pastor, I just had this really bad thing happen in my life. I haven't even been, haven't even been reading my Bible. That is like saying I'm dying of thirst and there's a well over there, but there's no way, there's no way in Hades I'm going over there. Why? Why? Well, it's because you believed a lie. You know what the lie says? Suffering needs to be avoided at all costs and God's not letting me avoid it, so I'm not going to go to God. Wow. Wow. Yeah, the Saturday morning men's group is reading a book by Tim Keller, Timothy Keller. Uh, Timothy Keller, if you don't know who he is, he is a pastor of Redeemer Presbyterian Church located in New York City. Um, he's just one of the most well-respected authors and pastors that your pastor knows of. I love Tim Keller. Saturday morning men's group has read, this is the third book we've read by him. One of them we read twice. And so we love him. He's a great writer. I'm actually going to read you something from the beginning of this book that he wrote on prayer. If you see the title of it, it says prayer experiencing awe and intimacy with God, okay? So here's Tim Keller, a pastor of decades at Redeemer Presbyterian Church, and this is what he says. In the second half of my adult life, I discovered prayer. I had to. In fall of 1999, I taught a Bible course, a Bible study course on the Psalms. It became clear to me that I was barely scratching the surface of what the Bible commanded and promised regarding prayer. And then came the dark weeks in New York after 9-11, when the whole city sank into a kind of corporate clinical depression, even as it rallied. For my family, the shadow was intensified as my wife, Kathy, struggled with the effects of Crohn's disease. Finally, I was diagnosed with thyroid cancer. At one point during all of this, my wife urged me to do something with her we had never been able to muster the self-discipline to do regularly. She asked me to pray with her every night. Every night. She used an illustration that crystallized her feelings very well. As I remember it, she said something like this. Imagine you were diagnosed with such a lethal condition that your doctor told you that you would die within hours unless you took a particular medicine, a pill, every night before going to sleep. Imagine that you were told you could never miss it or you would die. Would you forget Would you not go, I'm sorry, would you not get around to it on some nights? No. It would be so crucial that you wouldn't forget. You would never miss. Well, if we don't pray together to God, we're not going to make it because of all we're facing. I'm certainly not. We have to pray. We can't just let it slip our minds. Maybe it was the power of the illustration. Maybe it was at just the right moment. Maybe it was the Spirit of God. 
Or most likely, it was the Spirit of God using the moment and the clarity of the metaphor. For both of us, the penny dropped. And we realized the seriousness of the issue. And we admitted that anything that was truly a non-negotiable necessity was something we could go ahead and do. Now think about that. Here's a pastor at the top of his profession. I cannot think of a pastor I respect more than Timothy Keller. And yet it took suffering, several things of suffering, Crohn's disease, 9-11, cancer, thyroid cancer. You know, a lesser man would have been angry with God. A lesser man would have turned away from God. A lesser man or woman would have tried to punish God for letting those things happen. How dare you let that happen to me, God? A lesser man would have found no value in his suffering. A lesser man would have believed suffering something that should have been avoided at all costs. What's it doing here in my life? But you don't have to be a lesser man. You don't have to be a lesser woman. You don't have to believe that lie. You can actually embrace suffering and you can see how God might use it to deepen your walk with him. So where do we begin? I mean, how do you begin to embrace suffering? I'm going to use a really old-fashioned biblical word. It's the word repent. (laughs) Repent. Stop running away from your troubles. Stop denying them. Stop fighting them. Stop resenting them. Turn to God and say, God, I am sorry for running. I have been avoiding facing this pain. And I realize I need to face it with you and accept it and see what you have in mind through it. And tell him, I need your help, God. I need you to help me through this. I want to learn to become a better person through this. I want to walk more closely to you through this suffering. Help me do that. You have to repent of the mindset that says, suffering should be avoided at all costs. And if God's God letting me have it, then that's a problem. And you have to begin to say, God, I'm willing to face this. And as you begin to do that, you'll be able to do what James is speaking about. You'll be able to consider pure joy when you face trials of many kinds. Second, I'm going to encourage you to do something that most pastors probably wouldn't encourage you to do, but I am going to clarify it. I'm going to say, ask God why. But there's two kinds of whys that you can be asking God. The common kind of why is the why that says, why would you let, me ha- let this happen to me? Why, 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 who, what do you think you're doing? Who do you think you are? God? I mean, why are you so mean to me? And generally speaking, you're not going to get any traction with that kind of why with God. Because you cannot put God in the hot seat. Never happens. You can't make demands of him. You can't twist his arm behind his back. That accusatory why, God, question has never been productive in my life and chances are it's never been productive in yours. But there's a different kind of why you can ask. It's a why that says, okay, what's going on here and what can we do here? It's a a why that says, God, why have you allowed this? What is it that you want to accomplish in my suffering? Why is this happening and what am I supposed to come away with, God? I learned that from my mom. (laughs) My mom was not uh, unacquainted with suffering because of Mary Jane, Glenn, Dave, and Steve, to name a few reasons for her suffering, right? I can remember her. She would say again and again, she would say, when I wonder uh, what's going on here, I say, God, why are you doing this? What is it that we need to learn? 
Why are you doing this? What is it that you want to accomplish? She would even share that with other people with, with such gentleness. Because my mom wanted to help them redeem their pain. She was willing to ask that kind of a why question. Third, how do you begin to embrace suffering? Consider ways that your suffering could be used by God. Paul speaks about suffering a number of times. He speaks of his own suffering. Paul had some kind of problem in his life. He called it a thorn in his flesh. Something that was troubling to him. Something that was hard for him. Something he wanted to be rid of. Something that caused him suffering. He says in 2 Corinthians 12.8, he says, Three times I pleaded with the Lord to take it away from me. But he said, My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, Paul says, I will boast all the more gladly about my weakness so that Christ's power may rest upon me. And he goes on and says, when I'm weak, that's when I'm strong. I hear Paul saying many things in that. But one of the things that I think he's saying, when he uses the word boast, one of the things I think he's trying to communicate to us is that Paul sees this suffering he's enduring as a means whereby he can say, look how great God is. We tend to think that if God would make our life peaches and cream, that that would draw a lot of people to him. God, why don't you give me that motorcycle? Then many people would want to have what I have, a relationship with you. Right? It's not really that way. Paul is delighting in the weakness and the insults and the hardship and the persecution and in the difficulties because he knows they show the power of God's grace that he can endure such things and he can stand up while he does it. He understands that God is getting glory through those things. I want you to think about something for a moment. I want you to think of two kinds of people. Think of a celebrity Christian. Let's make it a Christian athlete, okay? So think of one that you know. A Christian who is an athlete who uses their athletic career as a means whereby to show the goodness of God. I think of Tony Dungy immediately. He's my favorite, right? You might think of Mike Fisher, who plays for the wrong hockey team in the NHL, <laughs> but is a strong Christian. Uh, he's married to Carrie Underwood, by the way. Right? You, you might think as well of uh, Simone Manuel. Uh, the Olympian swimmer who uh, won the gold and immediately gave glory to God in, in that moment, you know? You might, if you're a golfer, you might think of Bubba Watson. Anybody golf here? You know who Bubba Watson is? Yeah, a couple people in the first service knew, yeah. I can't believe there's a golfer named Bubba. Doesn't make sense, right? But Bubba Watson tweets Bible verses all the time. He uses, like all of these people, they use this platform as a means whereby to say, Look at God. Look how great God is. Look how great God is. And they are somewhat effective in doing that. Now I want you to think of someone else who isn't an athlete. I want you to think of a woman named uh, Johnny Erickson Tata. You may not know her, um, but I want to suggest to you that she maybe, in her weakness, has had a greater impact than all of those people I just mentioned combined for the sake of the kingdom. Johnny Erickson Tata has written over 50 books, <laughs> Tony Dungy's written three, I think, right? Mike Fisher, I don't know if he can write. I'm just kidding. It's because he's not a penguin I said that. There's a whole new level of uh, dis disregard for the opponent in hockey that you don't understand if you're not a fan. Johnny Erickson Tata has written over 50 books. She's a regular columnist in several magazines. She was inducted to the Christian Booksellers Association Hall of Fame in 1995, and she's still doing it. 
she received the Gold Medallion Lifetime Achievement Award 15 years ago, 2003. She, uh, for over 35 years, has had a radio show called Johnny and Friends. It aired on over a 1,000 stations. She has been interviewed on TV shows like Larry King Live, ABC World News Tonight, Fox News, Megan, or The Kelly File, Megan Kelly. PBS uh, did a religious and ethics series, and they had her on there to talk about people with disabilities and her ministry with them. She has appeared in print outlets in Christianity Today, World Magazine, the Chicago Tribune, the Los Angeles Times, and on radio shows like Breakpoint, Focus on a Family, Family Talk, the list goes on and on again. Her commentary on disability and related issues has appeared in the Wall Street Journal and Time Magazine. Who do you think has a bigger impact for Christ? The ones who don't suffer or this one who has suffered? We'll probably never know for sure. And both of those impacts are good and beneficial for the kingdom of God. But she puts her suffering on display, not to gain sympathy or pity, but to show the greatness of the power of the Lord Jesus Christ. Can you do that? I think you can. I'm not saying I think you'll be on a thousand radio stations. But I think that you can use your suffering to help people you know. Uncle Joe, who doesn't know Christ, or your neighbor who never has been to church, or that person you work with who's been embittered by religious people, your suffering, your suffering might be something that God could use to help them. Listen, I know the suffering stinks. <laughs> I know it's very difficult to consider it pure joy when you encounter various trials. I want to avoid suffering. I think Johnny would say, you know, if there was any way I could not have happened to me what happened, that would be okay. I don't know anyone who has had a profound suffering, like losing someone close to them, and then seeing God use that for great things, would ever say, yeah, I'm glad that happened because this is better. It doesn't work that way. But here's the reality. You are going to suffer until you're in heaven. Off and on. There is no denying it. How you respond to that will determine how much benefit you and the kingdom of God receive from it. And Christ can give you an ability to respond to suffering that you never, you never really could have hoped for outside of him. It's important that you take this moment to give some thought to your perspective on suffering. Have you been allowing it to make you bitter, angry, Are you the kind of person who, when it happens, you say, okay, God, I'm not going to read my Bible for a while. Don't be that guy. Are you instead saying, God, help me see the value in this. Help me do, help me do what James suggests. Help me consider it pure joy. I want to pray that you could do that. But here's how I want to do it. A little different. Don't move yet, okay? If you recognize that you're dealing with a level of suffering that is a struggle for you, in a moment I'm going to ask you to stand and then I'll pray for you. Okay? Here's the deal. Whatever you're struggling with, whatever suffering you're struggling with, 
You may feel like it is huge. I'm ready to stand. (laughs) Pray for me, pastor, and that's great. But chances are, you may feel a little bit of last week's lie. Well, my suffering isn't that bad and I'm not that important anyway. And so you want to remain seated. But here's what you've come to know. I'm going to say it anyway. Suffering is suffering. Some of it is worse than others, but all of it stinks unless we're ready to have God help us through it and to live well through it. So your suffering may seem very small to someone else, but to you it's significant or it may be grand. Whatever it is, if you would like me and our church family to pray for you, would you stand right now, right where you are? So if you're seated, I want you to just pray with me for those who are standing, okay? And we're just going to ask God to help you in your suffering and to help you to help you come through this in a way that number one, glorifies him, number two, benefits others, and number three, actually transforms you. So let's pray. Father in heaven, as we are standing here, and I count myself among those who are standing, we come to you recognizing our suffering. We tend to want to believe that suffering should be avoided at all costs, And that makes us close our eyes at times. It makes us become angry at times. It makes us want to run and hide. It makes us respond wrongly to suffering. We repent of that. I would ask, Father, on behalf of all of us that are standing, I would ask first that you would receive glory through our suffering. Just as the Apostle Paul says that Christ's strength might be demonstrated in my weakness, make it so for those of us who are standing. Because we can't really think of anything, any higher purpose that our suffering could possibly accomplish than to bring glory to the one who made us and sent his son to die for us. And so, Lord Jesus Christ, in our suffering, be glorified. Be glorified. Be glorified. And second, Father, as we unite our hearts standing before you, we would ask that our suffering would be a benefit to people around us. That we would, that we would suffer well Not so people would look at us and say, wow, he's tough, but rather so people would see you and say, I don't know how he did that. It had to be Jesus. Make it so, God. Make it so that people would be benefited through our loss, through our suffering, through our heartache. And third, Father, I would ask that you would transform our hearts Maybe it's arrogance. (laughs) And we used to think that people that have the same kind of heartache that we have, well, they just didn't do things right. Forgive us for such sin. Maybe it's that we've been discompassionate. And we're like, yeah, well, whatever. That's their problem, not mine. Forgive us for such carelessness. Whatever needs changing in us, God, please don't let us close our eyes to that. Direct our attention to that. And use this work of suffering to perfect in us the spirit you desire. Transform our hearts. Make us different. This is our prayer of our heart, and we pray it. We pray it in the name of the one who suffered on our behalf, Jesus Christ the Lord. Amen.